Well, good afternoon. It's good to see you all. We have some visitors with us, some very dear friends. Um, it's great to have you here today. We are starting the book of 1 John. So we just finished up Galatians on the centrality of the gospel, and now we're going to cover 1 John, an assurance of eternal life in Christ. And you have Jason to thank for the book. We talked about what to preach through together, and he wanted to go through 1 John, and I thought that was a fantastic idea. So here we are starting. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1. <clears throat> but the question that came up in my mind this week as I was preparing is, why do so many Christians lack assurance of salvation? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's some good reasons, right? Like our faith is weak. We, we have that example of Peter who you know, said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? He, was, he, he tried to walk out on the water with Jesus, and then when he got his eyes off of Jesus, he started sinking. Um, John knows that this is a problem because as we're going to see in 1 John, he writes this letter, chapter 5, verse 13, so that they would know they have eternal life, that we would know we have eternal life. Um, and so there's, we shouldn't be surprised when we doubt. Sometimes we think, well, I can never doubt this. That if I was a real mature Christian, I would never have any doubts. Well, John seems to think that Christians have doubts and they need assurances. Well, I would guess that one of the reasons we lack assurance is we look at the subjective things in our life for assurance, of which we're told to do. For example, Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit, and so we we look at the fruit in our life, but we look at the holy character of God and we think, man, I'm, I don't measure up. Am I producing enough fruit? I know who I am. I know that I still sin. I know that I still get angry. I, I use my words as weapons. I know that what my thought life is like. And man, it seems to be that that's not what Christians are like. And so am I a Christian? Or perhaps it's, you know, the culture around us, postmodernism, what we're living in, uh, ask this question, can we even really know absolute truth? And their answer is no. I mean, Pontius Pilate was sort of the way ahead of his time when he told Jesus what is truth. So, so sometimes we buy into this thought of, could I even really believe it? Is there really an absolute truth that I could understand and know and hold on to that would be like a foundation or we all just victims of what's true for me may not be true for you and what's true for you may not be true for me that's what our culture is holding out and so we we fall prey to that and so we lack assurance because we wonder well is the bible true is what god said to us true i know the bible says jesus died for my sins but man i look at my sins and did he really die for all of them Maybe I've sinned too much. Instead of looking at the objective assurance, and, and John's going to get into this later in his letter, but, but let me just give you the end, <laughs> the, the punchline. Our assurance ultimately is not rooted in our subjective experiences. Ultimately, it's rooted in something outside of us the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that he died for our sins. And when he died, he paid it all. And there's nothing left to pay so that he could bring us to his Father in heaven and we could be welcome in his presence. And so we don't have to fear that we're going to be kicked out of the family, that we're going to be cast out, that we're going to be orphaned or exiled. No, he came to seek out those who were exiled and bring them home he came out to seek those who were orphaned by the fall and to bring them into the family of god and john talks about this over and over and so the book of first john this little letter of five chapters you could listen to it on an audiobook in about 12 minutes and I'd encourage you, I listened to it about five or six times today. Jen probably was sick of it. I just had it on repeat earlier today. I would encourage you to listen to the whole thing. 
be encouraged. John, as a pastor, is loving these people and he wants them to know that they have eternal life. Now it's interesting, he also wrote the Gospel of John. And we heard John chapter 1 read to us a little bit earlier in uh, uh, the service, but John chapter 20, verse 31, he gives the purpose of his Gospel. The main purpose of his Gospel, according to John 20, 31, is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life in His name. So the whole reason the Gospel of John was written is that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that believing in Him, you'd have life in His name. And then his epistle, he writes to say, I want you to turn over to chapter 5, verse 13. Let's look at this with your eyeballs. Or type it in on your smartphone. Look at what he says here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And taken together, it's, it's really cool, actually, that what John does is he, he gave his gospel to say, do you, know, do you want to know what it means to have life? Believe in Jesus and you can have life. And now that you've been a Christian, you're doubting you have that life. And so I'm writing this so that you would know that you have this life. That you've believed in the Son of God and so you have life. Assurance of eternal life in Jesus. Now, we're going to see through this letter that there's assurance through a proper knowledge of the Gospel concerning Jesus. The only way we can know we have eternal life is if we understand the Gospel rightly. That is the good news concerning Jesus. And so John's going to talk about that he's our advocate with the Father in the midst of our sin and that he's the propitiation, which is a big word to mean he satisfied the righteous requirement of God for us so that we could come to God. We have assurance through the fruit of obedience to the Father's commands. He does say that those who abide in Christ, those who are abiding in Him, obey His commands and manifest love. And so the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll get to in a minute, this evidences itself in obedience to the Father's commands. Now, what we know we have in the New Covenant is not what John said in chapter 1. The law came through Moses, but grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. And the law written on stone was in the Old Covenant. The law written on our heart is in the New Covenant. That's why John will say later, you don't need anyone to teach you. Because the law's been written on your heart. You know because you've believed. Also assurance through the indwelling Spirit's manifestation of love in our lives. Love for God and love for others. He's got a whole section that is fabulous on this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave us His Son. Sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And now we love one another. So the purpose of just these, this introduction that I'm going to read to you now is to be the, the background and the basis of what John's going to cover in the rest of the letter. Let's turn to 1 John 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, that which we've heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it. <clears throat> and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's all we're going to cover today, four verses. And there's a lot there. But Jesus Christ, what we're going to see is He's the Word of life, the God-man, who is the one basis for our fellowship, our eternal life, and our joy. And what we're going to see is this is a life like no other. This is life as God intended it to be when we understand the good news and when we cling to Jesus. This is life without regret. What does sin bring? Regret. Who here has sinned without regret? None of us. 
fact, that's almost the very definition of regret, is it? Isn't it? I wish I would have done something different because what I did was stupid. It was foolish. It was destroying to my soul. But life in Christ, the word of life, is abundant life, full of joy without regret. Life as God intended it to be. So, the first major point is going to be, so this is one little sentence in the Greek. The main verb is not even until verse 3 when he says, um, we proclaim also to you. So the whole beginning is this convoluted sentence. And if you had to go back to your old diagramming in English class, you would pull your hair out. This is what we teach guys in Greek, how to pull their hair out. I mean, how to diagram and how to translate. But what happens is, is John wants to get to what he's saying. And what he's saying is, at verse 3, we're going to proclaim to you something. We're going to declare to you something that's true. Now, all of this is about the word of life, who we know as Jesus. And he's got a whole lot of words to say about the word of life, which we're going to get into. And then the second thing he's going to say is that we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. So the two verbs in this one little sentence is proclaiming and writing. Proclaiming to you something true about Jesus, the word of life, and writing to you so your joy would be made complete. That's how he starts the letter. I don't know about you, I've sometimes heard this letter preached as if it is a scare tactic. You ever had that happen? Uh, Because there's so many things about those who are children of God don't keep on sinning and without an understanding of the context man it can be used as to weaponize you to think that am I ever really in so I've heard people preach this book of first John which is about assurance to basically tell you you don't have any assurance which makes me want to do some laying on of hands in a jujitsu sense and not a biblical sense I'm living too close to Vallejo now. My Vallejo roots are coming out. So this unusual word order. He doesn't get to the the verb until verse 3. Greek has a way of constructing their sentences. And the reason John does this is the proclaiming is good, but that's not the emphasis. He's going to proclaim something to you, but what he wants to emphasize is the object of that proclamation. So that's why he starts in verse 1. That which was from the beginning. That which we heard. That which we've seen with our eyes and looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He wants to make much of Jesus in verse 1. And he's talking about his eyewitness experience of life and fellowship. John is going beyond the experience of just living with a great teacher on earth. He spent three years of his life with Jesus on this earth. And he's saying that there is something beyond him just as a good teacher. There's something incredibly profound that he brought to John. And John says, these eternal realities of life and fellowship with God were brought to us through the word of life. He's the one, Jesus, who brings this life to us, this fellowship to us. He's the one who brings this unity to us. And what he wants to proclaim is the good news concerning Jesus. Because this is really good news. So John says, I was an eyewitness. We heard it in John 1.1, didn't we? The same kind of, instead of saying that which was from the beginning, like we have here in verse 1, he said, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In fact, turn over to John 1. I know we read it a little bit earlier, and I'm not going to spend too long here. But I just want to point out a couple verses, and no rabbit trails, right, Jason? In the beginning was the Word. So uh, John in his letter picks up the same thing. I'm proclaiming to you about the Word of life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what did the Word do in the beginning? He brought creation life into existence. It says, in Him was life, verse 4. 
and the life was the light of men. Well, what he had done in verse 3 was all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So all of the created universe, the heavens and the earth, Carquinez Straits right there, the water, the mountains, the hills, were made through Jesus, the word of life. And so John, when he writes his gospel, he wants to get down to verse 18, right? No one has ever seen God, but the only God who's at the Father's side has made Him known. So it's not only is Jesus the one who's the Word of life, but He's the one who makes known to us the Father. And how does He do it? Well, He had said, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And those who believe in Him those who receive him in verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. So all these same themes in John chapter 1 are brought up in the letter, the epistle of 1 John. John says, I was an eyewitness. Back to 1 John. He's an eyewitness of the word of life. He's one who was with him who heard Jesus teach, who heard Jesus speak. He saw with his eyes the miracles of Jesus, the person of Jesus. He, he touched Him with His hands before His resurrection and after His resurrection. And He says, you can believe this. This is eyewitness truth. Not only that, John was an apostle who received the indwelling ministry of the Spirit to testify to the truth. John 15 says the Spirit, when He comes, He's going to speak concerning Jesus and reveal all things to the disciples. So He not only saw with His eyes and heard with His ears the teaching of Jesus, but notice how you have in your English Bibles, verse 1 it says, we heard, we saw with our eyes, which we looked upon and touched. And there's I don't want to make too much of this. It's two different words. Um, seeing and then looking upon or beholding. But the second word has a significance, I think, of going beyond just simply glimpsing or seeing, but perceiving and, and looking into and the true significance of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's like the difference between these two statements. Listen to the first one. Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross in Jerusalem. Everything's true in that statement. But the second statement is Jesus the Messiah died on the cross for my sins. Do you hear the difference? One is simply a, a statement of fact which is true. The other is a significance. He died for my sins so I'd be forgiven. And I'd be right with God and a part of His kingdom. This is what John is, I believe, talking about is we're looking into the significance of this one who's the word of life. What John experienced, he's going to say in the letter, we've also experienced when we believe the gospel. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. There's that phrase, from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you heard. A little bit farther down, chapter 2, verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. We're going to talk about this in a minute, but fellowship that he speaks of in chapter 1, he switches to the phrase abiding in the rest of the letter. Chapter 3, verse 11, he writes, this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another. So John says, listen, when you became a Christian and you believe the gospel, you experienced the same thing I experienced. Jesus was no longer just a person in history. He's no longer just a name from a, 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 a history book. You looked upon Him, perceived Him by faith, and as it were, saw who He really was. That He was your Savior who died for your sins. He's God in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity. Don't forget what Jesus said to Thomas. When Thomas, you remember that account when Thomas, he's, I mean, Thomas, I would have been a little bit like Thomas probably. 
you know, hey, I heard that Jesus was raised. I wasn't there. You guys, you probably were, you know, smoking something. I don't know what was going on, but I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. Like, you can't convince me that Jesus really was raised from the dead, and then Jesus appears, and he tells Thomas, hey, Thomas, don't be unbelieving but believing. Touch my hands. Touch my side. Feel the scars. And immediately his unbelief is turned to belief and he says, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus responds and says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet believed. So the Apostle John, who was there in the room when that happened with Thomas, and I get the impression as he's writing this letter, he might be thinking of that that moment because he he says that hey listen i'm an apostle i saw jesus i was with him i touched him i i i heard him i saw him all of these things concerning the word of life and i'm letting you know that i'm proclaiming it to you so that you would have fellowship communion with us and with the father and you would have joy that these things are really true Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So what is this eyewitness experience of life and fellowship? Well, in verse 2, John has a, a parenthetical statement, a little rabbit trail that he goes on to say this is the eternal life revealed in the Son. Verse 2, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us he's now explaining oh yeah this word of life i know you know his name but we're we're doing a little bit of drama here we're not saying his name yet and i have a little parenthesis that says oh this word of life oh yeah he was with the father oh yeah verse two he was made manifest to us so he became a, a man and, and manifested in the flesh you know who he is We've seen and testified to it and proclaimed to you that he's eternal life. Jesus said in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that was in the context of Philip, the disciple, who says, hey, Jesus, we've been with you a long time. Well, he didn't say that in the text. But, you know, just show us the Father. That would be enough. Just show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The word of life, our Savior Jesus, is the one who became incarnate. But what was He doing before He was incarnate? He existed eternally in the past with the Father at His side. When we receive the message of the Gospel, we have his life this eternal life that he has in fact turn over to first john 5 john's going to return to this thought verse 11 this is the testimony that god gave us eternal life and this life is in his son and whoever has the son has life and whoever does not have the son of god does not have life so he's going to go to the end and conclude from the beginning what he was talking about. This eternal life, this word of life that was always with the Father became manifest to us and here's what we're proclaiming to you. You can have that eternal life. And in the Gospel of John, we see clearly the way you have it is not by your doing, but by your believing. You're by your receiving. By your abiding The eternal Son became the incarnate Son so that we might become adopted sons and daughters. That's what John's going to teach us in this letter. In fact, turn back to chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. I can't hardly read this without wanting to sing from my Sunday school days. <laughs> if it said, behold what manner, I, I, it would be done. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I love that John, in a book on assurance, says, hey, beloved, look 
at this reality. What kind of love, what manner of love is this that God the Father gave us? That we would be called children of God. And I know you don't believe it, so I'm going to say, and so we are. It's really true. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Think about that. The eternal Son became the incarnate Son so that we might become adopted sons and daughters. And John wants us to know this so that we would have assurance that we have eternal life. That we're really part of the family. That we really are in the kingdom of God and we're children of God. A little bit further, verse 10. By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And then he says over in chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. There's some other passages I skipped over about what it means to be a child of God. But the, the emphasis is that now that we're a child of God, we begin to take on the look of our Father. We resemble our Father in heaven. It doesn't take much to see that I resemble that man sitting out there in the lobby, my dad. The older I get, the more I look like him, which is a good thing, by the way. You're a good-looking man. <laughs> Our Father in heaven, when we become children of God, we begin to resemble him. We begin to take on his appearance, his characteristics. We love one another. We love God. We obey His commands. And what God is doing by the Spirit is He's renewing His image in us so that we become more and more like Him. And if we want to see what it means to look like Him, we saw in chapter 3, verse 2, that His Son Jesus, who is the Son of God, when we see Him when He returns, we will be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. That's good news. That's assurance. You know when that is assurance? When you battle sin in your life that remains and you think, am I ever going to resemble God? Am I ever going to put off this sin and am I ever going to be holy? You know when else this is encouraging? When you are battling trials and discouragement and you think that God is far from you. I've been there. Where is God in the midst of this? Oh, He cares for you. He's committed to you. He's brought you into His family. And He's not like earthly fathers that forget about their children or who are absent or who are overbearing. He's a perfect Father in heaven who always listens to His children. And so we can take great comfort and hope in that. And what He's given us in this family back in 1 John 1, verse 3, is fellowship with one another rooted in our fellowship with the triune God. He, so he ends his little parentheses in verse 2 about who Jesus is, the God-man, fully God and fully man, eternally existing at the right hand of the Father as the Son of God and becoming incarnate and manifest to us as the Word of life for our sins to die in our place on the cross. And then John says, that which we've seen and heard, verse 3, we proclaim also to you. And he just said what that was in the first two verses, but now he gives the reason. Why has he been doing this? Verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So John brings up this word fellowship. Koinonia, you know that word. This idea of a common relationship and communion because of our shared interests and purposes. We have a common confession that Jesus is Lord. We have a common purpose to glorify Him. The Spirit brings this fellowship, we're going to see later in the letter, both because of our common confession that Jesus is Lord, but also our new hearts in the new covenant that gives us 
a common purpose to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. In other words, what John's going to call a new command I give you, that you love one another, not as the world loves. A love that can only be available because we are in Jesus, because the Spirit is indwelling us. John is concerned more with the experience of fellowship than simply the existence of fellowship. Let me say that one more time. He's concerned more with the experience of fellowship than the existence of it. You see, this fellowship with one another is rooted in our fellowship with the triune God, so it should be the characteristic of our lives, the atmosphere of our lives. He, he says a little bit later in verse 7, if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship. It exists because we're in Jesus. But we don't experience that communion always if we're not living in line with what He's talking about. And John's writing this to say, oh, I want you to experience this fellowship. This love for one another. This family of God. This, this idea of walking in the light and being in the light. And not hating your brother, but loving your brother or sister. For example, if you were to take the time this week, and I encourage you to do it, just go look at all the times the word abide is used in the letter. 14 times regarding Christians. And uh, I, I told Jen I have all this list of verses and I could just rattle them off like a machine gun. And she said, please don't do that to us. Nobody wants that. So I'm just going to pick a couple. Let's turn to chapter 4. Let's start in verse 12. We're just going to read 12 to 16. No one has ever seen God, the Father. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us, and by this we know we abide in Him and He in us, because He's given us His Spirit. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So how many times is the word abide? A lot. I don't even know. But in verse 12, he says, you know what? Though we can't see God the Father, when we abide in Jesus, we see the love of God manifested in our lives and into the lives of others. And so we get a glimpse of God the Father who is love that he had talked about earlier in chapter 4. That's an incredible thought. I don't know if you've thought about this much but it's a little bit intimidating and staggering to me that when we gather as the church like this and we love one another, what people see in us is God the Father. His love. The one who's not seen is manifested in us. His love is seen in us toward one another. That's incredible, isn't it? So when we're doubting if God will ever use us, you know, it's, you know I lead a seminary. These guys all want to be the next Spurgeon, don't we all? No, nobody ever, you know, strives for just being a non-effective uh, preacher. Well, we want to be effective and see fruitfulness. And so, guys can get discouraged when their ministries are small, when they don't grow, when they're in little country churches that can't even afford to pay them a full-time salary. But but the measure of faithfulness in ministry we have to keep reminding ourselves and them is not the numbers it's not those things it's it's the unseen things it's the fruitfulness over time we all know this but we doubt it don't we so then guys doubt if they're really called to the ministry in, in the same way as christians you can doubt if you really are a christian because what have i ever done for jesus what's ever happened what 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 if, I, there was a, a, a man in our church in Brentwood that he came up to me one time. I was preaching on the uh, spiritual gifts in the church. And, and um, he said, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. And I said, okay, well, um, what ways have you served in the church where you might see you know, fruitfulness manifest? And he said, I don't think I've ever seen fruitfulness in my entire life. 
and it broke my heart. Here was a man who was a little bit rough around the edges, a lot rough around the edges. Um, he had said things to me that were abrasive over the years, but he, he doubted assurance and comfort because he had never thought he had perceived that God was working in his life. But this man had, had loved some of these teenagers in our church enough to start a band and teach them how to play music. And he had, he had been faithful to, to, to love his friend who needed Jesus and wanted me to, to, to jam, do a jam session with his friend so that his friend would know about Jesus. And these marks of the love of God were on him. And, and what John tells us here in chapter 4 is, Verse 12, though we cannot see God the Father, when we abide in Jesus, we see the love of God manifested in our lives and in the lives of others. In verse 13, there's a subjective assurance here, isn't there? In verse 13, he says, we know we abide in Him because He's given us His Spirit. And the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He sheds the Father's love abroad in our hearts, Romans 5.5 says. But that's subjective. Sometimes that... We, we don't always experience that, do we? And so he follows up in the next verse with an objective assurance. Verse 14, we've seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. And then verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. So how do you know that God's abiding in you? Well, you have the Spirit testifying it. But what if I don't feel the Spirit testifying to me that I'm abiding in God? Well, if you believe and confess that Jesus has come into the world and that He's the Savior of the world, God abides in you and you abide in God. Isn't it interesting that our world tells us that all of the problems in your life come from outside of you and the solution can only come from inside of you? So you have to, power of positive thinking, or you have to become a better person through new habit formation, or the gospel says, oh no, the problem's in you. You're a sinner by nature and by birth, and the solution is outside of you in Jesus. But I tell you what, that kind of solution is far more assurance, isn't it? Because if it's objectively outside of me and Jesus actually paid it all, it means I don't have to doubt that my sin is covered, that it's done away with, that it's removed as far as the east is from the west, and that I have a place in heaven with God. I don't ever have to doubt that. That's why Paul in Romans 8 says, if He didn't spare His Son, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? That's hope. That's comfort. That's assurance. And so then he caps it off in verse 16 of chapter 4. And he says, we've come to know and to believe the love of God. The love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. The conclusion of the matter is that this knowledge that we've come to know and this faith that we've come to believe and this love that we've experienced work together to assure our hearts that this God of love is our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And He's for us and not against us. So back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. This is what John's proclaiming. And then he says, and I'm writing these things so your joy would be complete. He wants to promote joy. That your joy would be full. It would be complete. And he's really just repeating the teaching that he heard from Jesus. Uh, um, turn over to I know I got you turning a lot of places John 15 I'm wanting you to see these connections between the gospel of John and the epistle of 1 John but John 15 verse 9 you know this passage Jesus says as the father has loved me so I have loved you abide in my love and if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abiding in Christ. 
abiding in the Father's love, in the power of the Spirit, what it produces in us is joy. And it's a joy that is indestructible. It's a joy that circumstances cannot touch. And we can have this paradox of experiencing sorrow and joy at the same time. That's how big this joy is. And John says, I want you to know this so that your joy would be full. I'm writing this to you so that your joy would be complete. It would be full. There's no lacking in it. Well, what does this look like? And we'll head towards the ending here, but four times in the, this letter, John says, I write these things to you. And I want to look at those four passages. The first one is here in verse 4. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Down in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So the second one, what, is, what does deep abiding joy look like? It looks like that you wouldn't sin. Sin steals joy, doesn't it? There's nothing, I, I didn't come up with anything new there. Sin steals joy and it steals our assurance of salvation in Jesus. John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you would not sin because I want your joy to be full. And when you sin, your joy isn't full. It's a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Right? It's, it's the classic shooting yourself in the foot. All we do is hurt ourselves in our sin and it steals our joy. And John says, I write these things. But look what he, he doesn't end there, does he? But if anyone does sin, chapter 2, verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And my beloved mentor, Frank Griffith, he loved this passage of Scripture. I think he repeated it to me every week. That in the midst of our sin, look what it says here. I'm writing these things to you so you don't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have, present tense, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. In the midst of our sinning, Jesus is advocating for us. So John is not giving us an unrealistic goal here to say, oh, I'd never sin again. He says, no, I don't want your joy to be stolen. I'm writing these so you won't sin, so that you would maintain your joy and it would be full. But when you do sin, oh, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right now and He's advocating for you. And He's completely cleansing you from the stain of your sin. What an incredible thought. That is absolute joy that when I wake up tomorrow and when I sin this week, I didn't say if, when I sin this week, I can look to Jesus and know that He's my advocate. And that I won't lose my assurance that what I believed in will be lost. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to save sinners. He came to release those who were bound, to bind up the brokenhearted, to give sight to the blind. He came for the sick, the wounded, the lost. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, that was the first one. The second one is in 2.26. I guess technically that was the second. This is the third. Now little children. Oh no, that's not it. Yeah, 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's gonna, he'd been talking about false teachers, and I think the way it connects to our joy is that false teachers steal our joy. False teachers try to give us either a Jesus plus theology or a Jesus minus theology. We just spent 12 weeks in Galatians. We heard all about the dangers of a Jesus plus theology. John, I think, is actually dealing with a Jesus minus theology because he was dealing with Gnosticism that was going on that says the material's evil, spiritual's good. Uh, these false teachers in here, the Antichrist that were rising up, were denying that Jesus is the Son of God. And this Jesus minus approach, if it is Gnosticism, even if it isn't, you know, it's, it's like having a cafeteria approach to Jesus where you pick what you like and you leave what you don't like. 
right? That's what we like about cafeterias, right? All you can eat buffets is we just go to the chocolate pudding every time because that's what we like, right? The bacon at the end, right? Don't eat any of that worthless vegetables. But, but what John is saying is false teachers actually steal our joy. Tabiti Anyabwile in a sermon on this passage said to receive the word of life is to embrace Jesus as he offers himself in the gospel. And that phrase, as he offers himself in the gospel, is very important. We must receive Jesus, the word of life, the eternal life, the Son of God, not as we imagine him to be or as we like to think of him or as someone else believes him to be. We do not truly receive Jesus if we do not accept him as he defines himself. So this is what John is getting at. I'm an eyewitness. I saw him for who he really is, and I'm telling you about him. And believe in him so that you would have joy and that it'd be full. And there's false teachers who are trying to steal your joy by saying it's Jesus alone isn't enough. Or the type of Jesus you need to believe in is not the one who's the Son of God in the case of 1 John. The last one I already read in chapter 5, verse 13 but it's worth returning to. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Doubt and lack of assurance steals our joy. John has been writing this letter to provide assurance that if we believe the Gospel, we're part of the family. We're children of God. We don't have to fear or doubt that we'll ever lose that fellowship. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher said, what an evidence of our Savior's deep attachment to His people that He's not content with having made their ultimate salvation sure, but He's anxious concerning their present state of mind. This is in his introduction to uh, his, a sermon on 1 John. He delights that His people should not only be safe, but happy. Not merely saved, but rejoicing in this salvation. Hear this, people of God, the object of the revelation of Jesus Christ is that you may have joy indeed, that you may have a heart full of joy, that you may know what full joy means. Here below, we get but drops and dashes of joy unless we're brought into fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Then we have the very joy of God in our souls. Oh, the delight of it. Oh, that you could all know it to the full. You hear what he's saying? The reason John's writing this is it reflects the heart of our Father in heaven who wants us not just to be safe with Him forever, but happy now with assurance. To have joy and have it to the full. Isn't it a terrible thing to see a Christian who has no joy? It's terrible when I'm a Christian who has no joy. I am not living out of who I am in Christ. I'm living out of that old man in the casket that died and was buried with Jesus. We as Christians should be the happiest of people. Eternal life, what John is getting at here, is that eternal life is more than just a possession, sort of a ticket to heaven card. Eternal life is a person. The Word of life who became flesh, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the One whom we have fellowship with, and with His Father by the power of the Spirit. And because of that, we have fellowship, communion with one another. This is a life like no other. One more quote, Augustine, who 1,600 years ago said this in his preface to his sermons on 1 John. The person who possesses the thing which he hears about in this epistle must rejoice when he hears it. His reading will be like oil to a flame. For others, the epistle should be like a flame set to firewood. If it was not already burning, the touch of the Word may kindle it. What a prayer. You see, John's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that your joy would be full. And when you hear about your Savior and what He does, that He's the propitiation for your sins, that He's seated at the right hand of the Father, that He's your advocate interceding for you in the midst of your sin, that you're a child of God and you're a part of the family, that you're walking in the light, that the blood of Jesus is cleansing you from the stain of your sin, how could you not have joy? It's like throwing gas on a fire. Let's close in chapter 5, verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come 
And He's given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. What a closing to this letter. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word. I trust it encourages the hearts of Your children. We are so prone to doubt because we're fragile. We're frail. We're but dust. But You know our frame. You know our measure. You know that we're but dust. And our Savior Jesus is a gentle shepherd. He's a good shepherd. A bruised reed He doesn't break. A smoldering wick He doesn't put out. You don't want us to live in doubt and fear. You want us to have assurance of everything that You've given us in Jesus. That's why Paul starts Ephesians 1 with we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Encourage my brothers and sisters with whatever they're facing that You love them, You are for them, and not against them, that You've proven it by giving Your Son. You gave us Your best when we were at our worst, and not only that, You poured out Your Spirit to indwell us, to seal us, to be a down payment and pledge of our inheritance, to conform us into the image of Your Son, to make us fit for heaven. Oh, Father, we need to hear this message over and over and over again. May we encourage one another with these truths and these words and in our fellowship and in our communion remind each other of what's true, that we are in communion with You through Your Son and by the Spirit. Even as we turn to the table now, would it be a reminder of the confidence and the hope that we have in our Savior Jesus? It's in His name I pray. Amen.